0: And that was really the jumping off point for us of the whole thing. Uh, And because we just said, why why is it that the laws written to govern how you can raise money for a startup in 2010 were written back in the 1930s before most people had a landline telephone in their
1: house, which is nuts. Hello. I'm Daniel Weinman and this is Beyond Technical, the Non-Technical Founders Podcast. You see, in order to bring my startups to life, I had to go from non-technical to CTO. I failed again and again and again until I finally succeeded a few times. Now I think it's time to share some of these experiences with you, together with a bunch of amazing people I met along the way. And for our first episode ever, I had the great pleasure of talking to my longtime friend Jason Best. Jason is the co-founder of Vector Fintech Partners and also the co-author of the crowdfunding investing framework behind the Jobs Act. In other words, if you ever came across equity crowdfunding, it's because Jason, his partners and a bunch of great people made it into law in the United States. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Let's check it out. Jason, my friend, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm very excited to have this chat with you. How are you doing, man?
0: I am good. I am good. I am uh, healthy and moving forward. So it's a good thing these days. I'm excited to be here. and Thank you so much for inviting me to have a chat with you today.
1: Yeah, love it, man. Love it. You and I go way back and it's always a pleasure. Yeah, (laughs) it's a pleasure to to catch up.
0: Great to catch up with you.
1: Yeah, man. It's I think it's a great starting point to to this conversation. Uh, we've met when you Woody and your third co-finder, whom I forgot the name. What's what's his name? Zach. Zach. You, Woody and Zach were working like nonstop to make equity crowdfunding happen in the United States and you made it. Can you tell folks a bit about this story and, and just so we can, we can start by where we've met?
0: Sure. We met um, because basically the, the story begins in an odd place. Um, it begins at a friend's wedding in <laughs> August of 2010. And Woody and I, these are friends of ours, Woody and I have been friends since graduate school, which is a long time ago. And as uh, so we were at a friend's wedding, uh, and we were talking about the lack of access to capital, You know, after a few, uh, a few drinks at a wedding, people talk about lots of crazy things. And we had both been really lucky. And we had both been able to build companies, raise money from VCs, angel investors, private equity groups, build businesses. But that's not the story for most people. Um, yes. Most people don't have access to that. And we only had access to that because we got lucky. Because uh, I'm from a small town in Louisiana, a very rural state in the South of the United States. 25,000 people, there's no VCs there. Um, And so I, I understand what not having access to capital is like. And so we said, look, you know, if you can give away money on Kickstarter, this is back in 2010, if you can lend money to entrepreneurs in the developing world through Kiva, why can't people in the U.S. invest in businesses they use every day or in entrepreneurs they believe in? And that was really the jumping off point for us of the whole thing. Uh, and because we just said, why, why is it that the laws written to govern how you can raise money for a startup in two thousand ten were written back in the 1930s before most people had a landline telephone in their house, which is nuts so and it was and it was that way because it had always been that way. Uh, we talked to we had calls with probably a half a dozen attorneys uh, securities attorneys who very patiently explained to us that that was not going <laughs> to <a> change. <laughs> Um, you know, from big firms and small firms, it's just like this is not changing. This, it, just, just do something else. This is crazy. We're not not very smart. We decided to be much more stubborn than smart. So we just decided let's try give it a try. So sitting at my dining room table, we uh, had my screen up, and there were two two web. The one was a web page that showed the the 1933 and 1934 acts of the securities laws that regulated the United States. The other was a blank word document, and we said if we're going to create. If we're gonna take this and modernize it, what does it look like? And so we created a 10 point framework we call the startup exemption framework, which said, here's how we're gonna raise money in the, in, the, in the age of Facebook and Twitter in a way that protects investors, provides transparency, the way that uh, enables companies to to, to do the, the process is easy enough for startups to use and that it, it enables this ecos- this new ecosystem of fundraising to grow. So, you know, we have no connections in, in Washington DC. We started going around. We, we met a woman there named Karen Kerrigan, who was instrumental in the passage of the Jobs Act because she was the head of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council in DC, which is the closest thing to entrepreneurs have for yeah. a lobbyist in Washington DC. She's amazing. Um, and so you know, we told her what we wanted to do. And she said, you know, well, first we went to the SEC itself. We went to the, the director of small business for the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States. And we sat before him and he listened very patiently and he patted us on the heads and like school children and said, you know, this is a really nice idea, but we don't do this. Like, <laughs> we're not going to change these laws because that's not in our purview. You have to, you know, the, the, the Congress and the president have to have to make a new law. And then we will then regulate the new law but we don't make this big of a change. And the big change really was allowing regular investors, unaccredited, non-super rich people, the ability to invest in small, in private companies. That was the big change. To a regulator, that at the time was like saying the earth was flat. It was just a basic yeah. tenet of the world. So you know, long story short, over the course of 460 days, we spent a lot of time in DC. Uh, Washington, D.C., walk in the halls of Congress, talking to different people. We, um, you know, testified in front of House and Senate committees five times. We worked very closely with the Obama White House. Later, if we have time, I'll tell you the funny story about how that started. The White House foundation uh, started. I would love to. Uh, the short version is uh, we've been lobbying. We had, we had had our first testimony in the House. We've been talking to lots of people in D.C. And, you know, people were curious. They were willing to listen. But, you know, it was sort of like big change, seems kind of hard. How do we know it's not going to be full of fraud and full of theft? Uh, and so, you know, we're not going to put our reputation on the line to try something new because nobody gets, no nobody in D.C. gets a promotion for doing something new. Um, and so anyway, one day Woody and I got an email in our inbox and we read the email and, at, at, and the, the, you know, the address of the email was whitehouse.gov. And we, and there was a gentleman who, who was the head of the, the uh, science and technology policy office in White House. So immediately we assumed our friends were playing a joke on us. And someone had like <laughs> created this fake email to send to us to get us excited because all of our friends thought we were crazy. Our parents also thought we were crazy for doing this. And so when it turned out, there was like a real, a real guy and a real phone number. And, you know, and he said, I want to talk to you guys about this. And that's really how we started working with the Obama White House on this policy as well, because he had heard our initial testimony and wanted to learn more.
1: That's wonderful.
0: Uh, and so anyway, over the course of that four and 60 days, we got it done. A um, lot, of, lot of lessons learned. Uh, we ended up being invited to the White House to sit in the Rose Garden and watch the President Obama sign uh, the Jobs Act into law in April of 2012. And then a whole new chapter of life began after that
1: that's uh, an incredible story especially the part where everybody were were saying you were crazy and you wouldn't get there i laughed when you you told you 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 talked to several attorneys because that's that was our experience here in brazil starting the regular crowdfunding not even uh, equity stuff because equity t- took us much longer to get there yeah, but we would talk to multiple attorneys, the central bank of Brazil, and they would say there's no way this could be done because of a law that was written in the 70s that uh, prevented um, basically what people called um, collective savings and the way crowdfunding works, uh, Kickstarter-like crowdfunding works from our the perspective of our law looks like collective savings and wouldn't work differently in our case we decided to just ignore the law instead of changing (laughs) it (laughs) and see what happens (laughs) and we're now 10 years uh, since we did it and no one questioned, literally no one questioned the model.
0: Our, the SEC in the U.S. Is, takes a slightly different view of innovation.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. I think, I think um, our equivalent to the SEC is very strict here in, in Brazil also. That right? That's why it took us, I don't know, five more years or, or even mm-hmm. more uh, after the U.S. had approved equity crowdfunding yeah. to approve here and still very early in our scenario.
0: It's so early here, too. It's so early here, too. We we only recently got the re- regulation change that goes into effect in March of this year, so March 15th of 2021, yeah. to increase the level to $5
1: million from $1 million. So
0: we're excited about that.
1: Yeah, tell us more about, about this, because this is a huge change, right?
0: When we first changed the rules, in tw- our first proposal was a million-dollar cap from uh, from regular investors, because we had to make the level uh, enough to raise money, but not so much that the, reg- the uh, Congress, or SEC was terrified of pyramid schemes and other sorts of collective, you know, sort of fundraising. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the the question I got asked a hundred times was, what happens if when my grandmother loses her life savings?
1: Yeah, like
0: yeah. So we put in place, you know, limits on how much individuals can invest and how much you can invest in total. Could, could be raised in total per, per raise. A million bucks is, is a lot of money to a lot of businesses, uh, regular businesses across the world. But to enable, higher growth businesses to raise. We needed to increase yeah. the cap to give them more headroom, more more, more opportunity.
1: Sorry. Uh, just to make very clear, uh, when we're talking about uh, the 1 million cap, we are, uh, at, at the present moment, uh, it, this is lower than a seed round, the average seed round yes. uh, in Silicon Valley, right? So we're, we're still yeah, not seed round so is th- 3 to 5 million. Very low. Yeah.
0: Yeah, seed round is 3 to 5 million. And so now, after... So we've spent so, be, so the we passed along in 2012. It took until 2016 before the SEC allowed regulation crowdfunding to begin because they finalized all the regulations. So you could tell they weren't very excited. Yeah. Um, we've been Woody and I've been collecting all of the data on every crowdfunding raise since the in- initialization. So we have all the data. And so with four years of data, four and a half years of data now, we can go, we, you know, we've been going back to the SEC and providing them with this data on a quarterly and annual basis. There's been no fraud in four and a half mm-hmm. years. Uh, there's been $700 million raised, more than 700,000 people. There have been crowdfunding raises in over 1,100 cities across the United mm-hmm. States. Um, and you know there, there are now hundreds of companies who have raised a second round Gone yeah. back, they raised the first round successfully and went back and raised the second round of crowdfunding as well. And other and, and pe people who have raised crowdfunding rounds that have now raised VC money afterwards. Yeah. Um and so all of these things that everybody said wouldn't happen or couldn't happen have happened. Um and so fortunately, um, um this this regulation change occurred at the end of last year. Now we're going to affect in the middle of March. Uh and that should enable anybody to raise a Silicon Valley seed round
1: anywhere in the United yeah. States. That's that's a a Very important change. How do you think this will affect the the creation of early stage startups and uh, the business of uh, early stage venture capitalists, which uh, is your business also, right?
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm now of um, one of the, the other things that I do is a fintech venture capitalist. Um, we invest globally, early stage, seed in series A, um, and so. I think it's good for the ecosystem. Um, you know, one of the things, one of, you know, um, uh, you know, COVID has been a horrible thing for the world. Um, one of the things that has, one, one of the silver linings to the crisis has been that that um, is taught the world that remote work works. Uh, number two, and what that has enabled is people to build companies anywhere in the world they want. Uh, and because people left the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and San Francisco to go back home and live with their parents or live in a cheaper place or just whatever, right? They wanted to go, they wanted to get out of cities and go to the country and then they built something and now they've been able to interest investors in it, even if they're in, you know, a mount, on a mountainside or in a small town or in a different country. So slowly, the investors are becoming more comfortable and investing in things that which are not all in Palo Alto or San Francisco and you're seeing more investors in more places be willing to look at deals. So this change in the regulation coupled with the societal changes we've had is is incredible for innovation, it's incredible for entrepreneurship and for investing. Um yeah. you know, I, I just there's always there are always people who are like, you know, oh there's there's um too many companies, uh, you know, not enough, not, not, you know, the, and too, too many things to look at. Investors complain about everything always, <laughs> um, and so, but you know, the point is, you want to have, you know, like, we, we shouldn't encourage innovation, job creation, and entrepreneurship everywhere, because there are smart people everywhere in the world. And one of the one of the incredible opportunities I've had as a result of, you know, after the Jobs Act is having worked in forty five countries around the world. So I've met a lot yeah. of people and. You know, I'm working on fintech policy and regulation, and there are incredibly brilliant people everywhere in the world, and all they need is access to capital and opportunity. Uh, and so that that's what that's what this does.
1: Yeah, and it, and and it's um, we cannot underestimate that there probably is a change coming to to the ecosystem with this um, this uh, update on the regulation that's just around the corner now. Next month, we're going to see, yeah. start seeing the results. What were, what were the changes uh, if the, the, they actually happened uh, on the individual invest, investment level?
0: So the changes would be that the, the two major things are it, it sort of slightly broadened the opportunity for people to invest up to, you know, up to 10% of their uh, income or net worth. So that there was just some, some small language changes just to allow people to invest, uh, you know, a maximum of $10,000 per opportunity. So yeah. it, again, it sort of makes sure no one's going to, you know, put all their money, you know, yeah. on a cryptocurrency. It's like a, it's a very, you know, safe kind of me- measured way to think about that. It, it, look, early stage investing is high risk, and you can certainly lose all your money. Um, but I would suggest that it, it, there it's it's no more risky than when people go to their Schwab or Robinhood account and um, start investing in futures and options and and
1: yeah. currencies, which is,
0: in my view, far
1: more dangerous. Yeah, just like we're we're seeing now with all this this yeah. crazy thing. Uh, and so
0: um the other change that is a big deal is the ability to uh crowdfund a fund. So you use a special purpose vehicle, an SPV, uh, to enable you to almost have your own kind of mini fund, which at first uh, regulators in 2010 were against. We explained that we thought it was a diversification tool so that someone could if you know if you could raise a million dollars and put that money into you know 10 companies, a hundred thousand dollars into each company, that seems like a good diversification strategy to me. Yes. Um, but it was just, you know, they, they were it was just too much change at the same time. But fortunately, after a lot of years of lobbying, we kind of got that change too. So those are the two other there's a few other sort of technical changes, but those are the most important ones for the for folks to know.
1: Yeah, wonderful. And you as an investor, do you see your strategies or behaviors changing with this law? In other words, are you going to uh, invest more in crowdfunding, crowdfunded deals, or just when people start raising more their seed round via crowdfunding, you're going to join more on the Series A? Do, do you anticipate any any change like that, or are you just um, looking to see what the actual change will be?
0: I don't have any specific views yet on where the change is going to happen, other than to say you know, there's going to be, number one, there'll be more opportunities for me to look at because there'll be more companies at the pre-seed level that get enough funding to to build an MVP, to get 10 customers, to get a little bit of validation and and have something to show to get beyond the idea stage. Um, You know, number two, I think this is a huge benefit for non-technical founders um, because it will enable you to formalize your friends and family around in in a way that enables you to get a little bit of money bring on a full stack developer to help you kind of scratch something together. And so that, so that, um, um, you know, a VC or or an angel or a syndicate can look at it and decide if it's something that that makes sense for them. Uh, Because at the end of the day, I mean, the thing, the big, you know, one of the big lessons is, um, you know, it's all about action and, you know, you can think about things for a long time. You can plan and hope and dream, but it's just, you got to get a start. You start You have to start wherever you can start on whatever you can start on. Uh, And that's the only thing. That's the only way to get anything done. And that's one of the the biggest challenges sometimes for non technical founders like me, like myself, is how do I start if I'm not technical? What can I do? Those kinds of things. So it's it's just. I think it just opens up more opportunities.
1: Yeah, and and definitely, um, I love that we're transitioning to this area. Definitely, the the biggest limitation for non technical founders is. Uh, sometimes knowing that they cannot afford good technical talent, and that's why they get into the um, competition for technical co-founders because they cannot uh, pay anybody to to build not anybody but anybody that's highly qualified or qualified enough for the job. So they they start looking for technical co-founders and sometimes spend months and months on end uh, testing someone and then this person starts the project but then gets a job offer in a in a big bigger startup or a big uh, company and they just leave and leave you empty-handed because they didn't you didn't launch. Part of it is of course knowing how to be lean, how to do a, the smallest MVP you can just so you can leverage the little technical help you have while you have it, because sometimes technical founders just will move on to other things. But a huge part of this is thinking you cannot afford paid uh, technical uh, people. With these updates on the crowdfunding laws, uh, everything will seem like non-technical founders will have a bigger incentive to raise a crowdfunded round, right?
0: I think so. And I think the other thing um, that we see a lot with non-technical co-founders that, that come to us, is they they have done the research, they've got a, a you know a good story and a good pitch, and a, and a, um, uh, you know, logically it makes sense, and there's a large uh, available market, and all those kind of things are there. Um, and then, but they what they want is the perfect three million dollars seed round, yeah, so that everybody gets paid, everybody has a comfortable life, snacks for, snacks snacks in the lobby, and the whole thing, right? And I just again go back to start something. And so if, you know, if you can raise $50,000, raise $50,000. Um, and, and that's enough to pay a full stack developer to get something put together. And, you know, and, and, and also the best if you want to give that full stack developer some equity as a part of that package. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. I and mean, you've raised a really good point. It's like, I've seen founders spend a long time founder dating, co-founder dating yes. and looking around and finding the perfect technical co-founder and, what I've seen, sometimes it works, you know, give it a shot, but it's like most of the time, what you need is a good full stack developer who's willing, who, who is like, like a few, a few, a few um, types of people to look for. Um, a person, you know, a woman or a man who had been at a startup, it's been acquired by somebody big, doesn't like the big company, who's looking for something, looking to get out and do something new. Number two, startup, somebody at, who was at a startup, the startup failed, good talent. Yeah. Just start failed. Um, number three, someone who now, now that the one one area that I've seen be problematic sometimes is someone who may be a full stack developer, but they've only been at a big company.
1: One hundred percent.
0: And they've never experienced life on the real in the real world. And so I would be cautious about people because it's a number of times I've seen someone who've only been at Goldman, only been at J P Morgan, only been at whatever. And then you put them into the real world and they're like, wait, where's my secretary and, um, you know, uh, my assistant and everything else. And so having somebody who'd been the CTO of Twitter in the last, you know, in in 2020 is not valuable to you.
1: Um, Unless, of course, it's um, as an advisor or an investor. Exactly.
0: But you need somebody
1: who's who's like
0: been coding a lot.
1: (laughs) And yeah, uh, we hire at at season. We hire developers that hadn't been working with startups, and the cultural shock is huge when that when that happens. Because, or not only developers, uh, sometimes our technical leadership and and folks that are very experienced, some uh, even worked at startups, but not as early stage as we do. And even then, the the speed. Not not the actual speed in terms of how much you you deliver, but the speed of on which you adapt and how um, how lean are you willing to get is it's um, something I agree one hundred percent when you have someone on your team that's been for a long time, hopefully uh, working on early stage stuff, they will. Cut corners, but not not the ones you shouldn't cut. They 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 will they will have this this experience, right?
0: What stage for you when you're looking at what early stage is where that line you draw between early stage and growth stage, where those technical people need to have that experience? Is it between A and B? Is it between C and A? Like
1: um, I am so so used. To be working before Series A, yep. that I don't even know very much about about the world after Series A. Yep. My startups were all uh, bootstrapped, so we I don't have this uh, experience. But definitely, I currently have a framework that I use to to try to contribute to to other non-technical founders' journeys. That are that is, if you didn't find product market fit yet I personally wouldn't even involve developers I would try to go uh, with no code tools or with service that's my my favorite actually I start by doing search stuff uh, creating everything well positioned so in the future we can become a product but at first do literally paid service probably higher end than you're you're gonna be able to charge when you when you have an actual product. Mm-hmm. But that's my my strategy is to literally start with the business and and then build tech or with the business plus no code no code solutions, which today are like Amazing. incredible. Until you find market fit. And my definition of market fit for this this case is when you have more demand than you can uh, fulfill.
0: I think that's a great framework because doing it like people always say like do non-scalable things until they break. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's yeah. that's a your your framework makes a ton of sense in that in that model because it's what you can do. You learn and also you learn what the customer will do right? and what the customer will pay for and how the customer thinks. Um, it always annoys me when you, when you meet with non-technical founders who've not sat with you know a bunch of customers and really yeah. know what's going on, yeah. um, or haven't really tried to sell something uh, before. Again, it's like waiting for perfection is, is that's not a good that's not a good sign of an entrepreneur because it's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I've been asked many times what's the first step for a non-technical founder, and the answer is always sell something to someone. Like there's no. <laughs> No other answer I'm, I'm gonna give. So I agree 100% with you. One uh, like uh, corollary of this framework is that I think you shouldn't date technical co-founders before you find product market fit, unless of course you you already have a network, you already know the people, and 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 it's obvious to you that you're gonna find someone and you're gonna join together and start together, and, and etc. If you don't know where to start, you don't know where to look, or if you've been looking and having a hard time, it's much better to either do 100% business development or hire someone to do no code. You don't even need to learn no code yourself because yeah. then you can focus on business development. But it's much cheaper to hire someone to do no code than it is to, to build actual code. But that's not even the biggest point. The biggest point is on maintenance. It's much, much cheaper to maintain no code solutions until of course you reach that that milestone of having more demand than you can fulfill and then you can think about optimizing your internal capacity through custom built technology that's that's the way i I try to to think it's very unfortunately it's not not very common for people to think like that people love to start with the product right
0: yeah, I mean, like let, for whoever's watching this, let me just say that like, that, that's like that—that's the lesson for the for, for today is what he just said, um, because um, I'll say my own personal experience when we one of the companies that uh, we started, um, you know, we first thought we needed this, and this was also a long time ago, back pre before there were no code tools. Everything was was it was had to be high technical to build, and everything you know people still bought servers and put them in places called, you know, rack space. And it's just, it's crazy. It's like, you know, prehistoric times, but you know, the, that opportunity to do things with, you know, just whatever you can do without, without having to code stuff. is so important because what we did, number one, our first step was hire people that promised uh, super customizable, super bespoke, incredibly, you know, intricate things that, to our, at that time, very untechnical minds, because it was a long time ago, sounded perfect. And then we got something that we could not maintain. And we could not afford to maintain with them. Um, Next, the next mistake that we made was another, the next thing was like, okay, now what we need to do is go and spend money on a really expensive, big brand that can do lots of stuff for us because the brand will fix everything and make people want to come to us because they're a global brand. No, no one cares. What yeah, um, I... <laughs> people want is software that's easy to use and works. That's all they care about. And so the approach that you're outlining, you, you take control of your own destiny, right? You, you, you understand the, the workflow and the process and the product and the customer adoption cycle in a way you could never understand in the other two ways I described before, uh, which will serve you well in, in investor conversations. Cause here's the thing. And I just had this conversation yesterday with a team. It's a it's a business that is offering something to small businesses that I think is actually very valuable for small businesses. But the pitch and they have they have te- they have some technical ability to deliver it and they've already and they've already got a of a, um, a product that works uh, and they're you know continuing to build it out. But in the pitch, I never it was like it's like one of these pitches you have probably experienced this too, Daniel. Where it's like there's something there, there's something really awesome there, but you can't quite put your hands on it. You can't yeah. quite grab a hold of it, right? And it's like, and you don't feel like the founder understands what that actual, clear, compelling value prop, like the one sentence value prop is. And it was really frustrating. And I, I'm just told him, i was like, <laughs> you hey guys, you need to come back and like think about this. Because it's like, I can't go to my investors and say, this is a good idea until I can articulate to them why this is this, this amazing thing. And it comes down to this very simple thing, how we think about, product markets fit and how we think about because big market is great and, and you can prove a big market for pretty much anything and that's and that's fine the big market's great there are big markets for lots of things the the, the, the and so if I'll, I'll i'll explain my bias here because what we invest primarily in is b2b and b2b to c opportunities yeah. we yeah. do very little on to consumer investing um, and so in those spaces the only two reasons a business ever buys anything number one to stop current pain they're experiencing in the business or number two to prevent future pain yeah (laughs) that's it nothing else nothing else because you can have a really cool thing and they're not going to buy it people will you know it's like and so what these guys had done in their pitch was articulate some cool things that were interesting and not sufficient
1: yeah and um one thing that i have experienced a lot and i think by my first startup experiences were with very, very talented technical co-founders. And our the whole startup development was driven by the product, just like was, I was uh, suggesting us not to do. And one thing that I noticed is that when people do not love the business development part, like... Man, I really love finding the unique value proposition and the, the right positioning and etc. It's hard for them to even grasp what you are trying to convey. Not because they don't know; they they read the book. They 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 know they should uh, do their I don't know their canvas or whatever. And the great the greatest technical co founders I've met, they they love product but they love business more. And not in the sense of making money necessarily, like providing value, finding that something that fits with someone and, and all this this design that's not on the product. Do you think these founders you were referring to right now, are they the, the, the type of people that prefer looking at the product than at this more subjective part? Or is it just that they need to work more on it
0: that's a really interesting question so they're they're very smart they're both very smart they both have had successes in their past they both are business people and, and I mean and like at first glance the 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 deck was a was you know was 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 well constructed but it was that like how are you gonna make me stop whatever it is I'm doing pull out my credit card and do something different and incur the, the psychological pain of explaining to my colleagues or my boss or my board or whoever, that I'm gonna do something different, which is gonna have some degree of short-term pain in order to get longer-term gain. And until you can help people, you, until you give people that magic moment, like because that, that was the thing we talked about yesterday, was like, you have to shrink the amount of time someone gets to get to that first magic moment with your product. Because then it's like, oh, okay, this is actually was worth the whatever I had to do to get there. And now I'll do it again because it's going to be, you know, less and less pain. But, you know, yeah. and the pain and just to make it really clear for people, pain in the business sense is my costs are too high. My revenue is too small. My profit margin is too small. My staff is too large. My staff is too small. Those, that's what pain means in the business sense. It's just like yeah. very tangible, real world stuff because if you can't yeah. solve a problem no one's going to buy your thing
1: and just just to add to this uh, an example to this i i had a uh, a business where i couldn't find the very specific pains and all of the pains i was solving were more subjective like you need more friends you need more community you need to feel better with yourself it was i'm talking about my tango dancing school i had yeah. and when I I think we did a pretty good job at on the marketing end, but I couldn't find the pain that was like okay, not not necessarily monetary, but um, more on the hard end, uh, less on the soft end. It it took much more effort in terms of marketing and finding people. We could generate a, a, the magic magical moments and, and all, but. To attract people to the first experience, it was really hard because you, you should, you needed to have a huge megaphone and find, uh, I don't know, uh, a needle on the haystack, and the ones that were already connected with this more subtle message. So, and for B2B in your case, it's even stronger because you need to, you're not, you need to sell internally anytime you buy something on a B2B world, right?
0: Yeah, and there's a uh, hundred points of no. And yeah. you have to think about like, if if someone does say yes to this, are there going to be people who are negatively impacted? Like in, like one example, real world example in insurance uh, tech, uh, which we invest, invest in also. Um, you bring in a new piece of insurance tech that maybe helps to decide what the rates of the insurance policy should be faster and easier than some of the people who today do it manually are worried they're going to lose their jobs. And so this is very kind of real world stuff. I will say that I thought your social media around your tango school was actually great. Um, oh, yeah? I, remember, I remember seeing all those posts on Facebook and other things. And it's like really well done stuff. For me, it was just like, well, obviously I'm not in Brazil, but it's like, it was, it's like you guys did it really, really well. And it's like, imagine, it was hard for me to imagine I could ever get to that level. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I could it. ever do it that well. We did well, but uh, I, mean, how, so I, I couldn't imagine I couldn't imagine myself being able to dance that well. So like, <laughs> like you say, like getting to that point of like trying it the first time, being willing to exactly. to risk and try exactly. it the first time.
1: Exactly that. And and we 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 were able to create those moments. It just mm-hmm. we needed to literally one hundred percent of what we invested to generate this moment was exactly what we made in the first moment so it was we we would we just break even in this huge social media investment and we rode the wave of facebook pre 2016 which which had which would actually enable small business to to do marketing there mm-hmm. and it worked but suddenly it stopped working and the the we couldn't we couldn't make this sustainable because we would invest like i don't know, 2000 in in ads and we would ha- before we would have 2000 in in revenue and and then it, the balance changed and we actually decided to to close the business because of, of this but if we had uh, the opportunity not to 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 need this big uh, megaphone and, and actually target more because we had clearer pains, pain points, yeah. just like you, you said, I think we, we might have had a better chance.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well.
1: One uh, interesting question because I meet a lot of B two B non technical founders and my bias is always towards service and I think on the B two B world it's easier to start with service because you still need to have to go to all the the points of no you mentioned if if you're selling a service or if you're selling a product right do you think uh, do you think I'm I'm wrong here or is it a good strategy to start by providing premium service and then Uh, Turning into a product. I think
0: it's a great strategy Uh, because if if there's something you can do manually or with a little bit of light automation. So, an example is um, the the founders I was talking about just now. um, They were able to take uh, some basic functionality in Google Sheets, uh, create a small plugin with very low code that enables someone to get the magic moment. Uh, in a few minutes uh, and so it's exactly what you were talking about so it's like there's still you know it, like at the first stages there was still some manual work for them to do because they said like let us take this on and do it for you and then hand it back to, the, to the customer who liked it right now they've got a little bit more code written that allows most of it to be done by the, by their software and, and the plug-in and then they're now going to raise a little bit of money to be able to make it a fully automated solution so yeah. they you know they're following your, your methodology and it's like you know, because you can you can usually especially you can usually find a handful of people who who are experiencing that pain significantly and who are willing to, you know, either pay you a little bit of money or give you a little bit of their time to try to um, alleviate the pain.
1: Yeah. And um, one of the fears people have when when I talk to them is that either for clients or um when they're selling to investors, they think without having a product, people won't buy or won't invest. So I'm gonna ask you, as, as an early stage investor, would you invest in a company that has like this this kind of um, low code or no code uh, product plus a lot of manual service, but they do have revenue and we're able to close deals, etc.? Or do you expect some level of product? Uh, before investing
0: and so the answer is it would depend on the specifics of the deal but broadly speaking what i would say is if someone came to me and they were had a here's this is let's say it's 75 percent manual and 25 percent automation today there we've made a hundred thousand dollars in revenue doing it this way you can clearly articulate the customer journey and the customer pain point and how you're solving the pain and you have a clear technical roadmap of how you're going to go from manual to fully automated in a reasonable period of time—that's measured in you know, weeks or months, not years—and that, and, and that there's a—you know—you can see the, the demand for, the, for that service over time. Then sure, that, that would make sense to me. That would make sense to me. But um, so it doesn't have to be fully automated. I mean, would I, do I want it to be fully automated over time? Yes. Because it needs to be uh, scalable for yeah. ventures, for a venture outcome. Cause like, of, you know, cause as a VC, most of the money that I invest is somebody else's money. They give me their money to give them a big return. And over the course of seven to 10 years. And so I'm a, I'm a fiduciary. I have to act in their financial interests. And so I have to invest in businesses that I believe have very fast growth potential, but that, that, but you know, the ability for a founder to deeply understand the customer journey and the customer pain at the beginning of the process enables them to solve that pain in a unique way. It's in a way, it's someone else, I, I'm, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm taking his phrase. It's called an earned secret, mm-hmm. right? It's like you as the founder have an earned secret and you are uh, Mike Maples, the famous Mike Maples, that's his, that, that's his Maples. phrase. Um, yeah, of like a floodgate uh, investments, V.C. In, in Silicon Valley. And you take that earned secret that you as a founder know because you understand the journey. And then you then ride a series of macro inflections in the market that enable you to create a high growth business. And so that, so that, that's, so where you're describing though is part of that journey. It's because it has to start somewhere. And there's, and, and, and so founders today are incredibly fortunate to have access to low code, no code opportunities, as well as, you know, more and more people who are able to code.
1: Uh, one final question, I don't know why, but I think people will uh, usually think as when you're an investor uh, and you have a, a, a VC fund, they don't think of a VC fund as a regular company, or at least is, that's my, the, yeah. the mindset I have. But I I would love to, to hear um, your perspective on like, do VC founders, people that create funds, are you afraid to fail just like if, as if you were creating a startup uh, have you are are there challenges that people do not anticipate and what what what's your take of of being an entrepreneur that created a fund instead of a product or a startup
0: yeah i mean the, the two the two paths to being a vc generally speaking are one someone who's come out of a larger fund who's been an investor their whole lives certainly you know they left Stanford and got a job at a big fund in Silicon Valley, and then they decide they want to start their own fund, which is not my journey. Or people who are entrepreneurs who have a little bit of of traction and success in their lives and decide that they wanted to to help other entrepreneurs and and to to build a business that way. Um, Having raised money for both a fund and raised money for companies, in my view, raising money for a fund is more difficult uh, because you are not, because when you're a founder you can you know set the set the, the product or the saas service on the desk and the and the is very it's very concrete even a saas product is concrete in that way because there's a thing and you're selling the thing and people are buying the thing and there's a transaction and it typically happens in a, in a fairly short period of time so you can gauge success with a fund all you're selling all you have to sell is your brain and your network and your and your work ethic That's what you're selling. Um, and so the, the main jobs that a VC has to prove they can do is number one, see as many deals as possible from, from deal flow sources. Number two, pick the right deals that are going to succeed big. And number three, help the companies you've picked to actually succeed, like do good work with those companies. So you actually can add value and not just wait for a big check to show up one day. Um, there are, and you know, I'll just, you know, being really candid. It's like, it is in a way, and there are some days it's really terrifying because mm-hmm. when you're a founder of a business, you have a hundred percent control of that business and you know that everything you're doing for that business will, will either succeed or fail because of your efforts and your team's efforts. Right. And it's, but it's a hundred percent in your control as a minority investor, as an investor who owns, mm-hmm. you know, between five and 10% of your business. I'm in the back seat of the car. I'm along for the ride. I've given you money and I now have told people who gave me money that these are the right people to invest in and I've got to do all I can do to help but at the end of the day I can't control I don't get to make the decision. Like I'm sitting at the board meeting and the CEO is telling me I'm going to do X and Y and I say to her you know I can I could have my opinion that I can tell her that's a great idea or a bad idea at the end of the day I leave and she goes and does what she wants to do. I have no control over that outside of a few you know, drastic measures. And so, yeah, it's... And the other thing about this, I, know, I love what I do. I love this job. Amazing. I, I, I absolutely am in love with what I do and I wanna do it for the rest of my professional life. Um, and it's incredibly rewarding, but it's, um, there's a lot of sleepless nights because you're trying to figure out how to, how to, how to add value, how to, how to find more investors for the fund, how to deliver value back to your investors, how to deliver value to the, uh, the ecosystem, how to deliver value to your, the founders you, you invest in. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's like everything in life. It's like, it's actually because, you know, like energy, you know, the energy in the universe, right? Like there's more, I think there's more karma and energy attached to venture capital, you know, it, it, investors. Yeah. Just because so much of what it, this is, is about the energy you put out and the energy you take into to these situations. Um, and about building your reputation, building your the people's, the ecosystem's trust in you and how you approach things. So it, it's, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of esoteric things that you can't control and you have to just sort of focus on things you can control. A long answer to a short question. Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, it was a beautiful answer, man. I, I love when we are able to look at all kinds of entrepreneurs and see that. That there is um there there are uh, similarities between the journeys so man thank you so much for today i enjoyed it uh, very much i hope we we can chat more and more and more and do things together love you man
0: we love that We'd love that we've been friends a long time and uh, you know anything i can do to be helpful to what you're doing i'd love to do it and, and happy to chat with you anytime and these conversations are always a lot of fun because
1: I always learn a lot. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, man. See you See you soon. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, I really, really hope this episode was of value to you and contributed to your journey. Please consider following us on YouTube, LinkedIn, and subscribing to the podcast on all streaming services. I'm Daniel Weinman, and this was Beyond Technical, the Non-Technical Founders podcast.